Hello there, this is Lisa Borders, and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Hello, everybody. Lisa Borders here. So delighted that you have joined us today. We have an extraordinary guest, a new friend, Charles Hoskinson, who is a mathematician by training, but an entrepreneur by design. Charles, welcome to the show. Lisa, thank you so much for having me on. I am so thrilled to have you. We all know you as the cryptocurrency king, and we're going to get to all of that. But I want to take a step back, first of all, and hear how you got to this place. I know you went to college in Colorado. I had the privilege of getting my master's degree at the University of Colorado at Denver. So that's our little connection right from the start. But tell us how you got to the cryptocurrency thing from your math background and Colorado. Yeah, it's been one of those serpentine winding paths and life takes you in strange directions. So originally I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, my dad's a doctor. My brother's a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor. My uncle's a doctor. So there are a lot of doctors in the family. And there was this expectation that I'd go and do doctor stuff. When I, I first started studying, I studied biology and chemistry, and I did this paramedic training thing, and I did all this other things. So I, I learned a lot about medicine and I discovered that I hate people. And so that's not, that's not good if you don't like people very much to go into medicine. That's a very people-centric uh, thing. So at the same time, I was doing a lot of math work. I, I just really enjoyed taking math classes. And uh, so I took calculus classes and linear algebra and differential equations. And I just kept walking that food chain. And then I said, maybe it'd be good to go be a mathematician. So after I finished up at uh, Metro State, which shares a campus with where you went to uh, university, I think we both probably took a lot of classes in the, the North Classroom building. Oh, for uh, sure. Yeah. So I asked for finishing up there. I went up to CU Boulder and, and I was going to get a PhD in pure math. And I just kind of got lost in the bureaucracy of academia. I, at first, I was like, what research should I do? and What type of mathematician should I be? And my problem was that I, the things that I was caring about, normal mathematicians don't care about. And the things that I liked doing research in, you can't really publish in because you can't solve those problems. So I was caught between two worlds. One, I really like the idea of formalizing math using computers because uh, I said, hang on, we have AI, we have all these amazing advancements in computer science. If you can make math machine understandable, then computers will be able to assist you in the proof writing process, the proof validation process, and these types of things. So long and short is that it turns out when you're a professional mathematician, a lot of the times you have chalk and a pen and you're writing by hand proofs. And then at some point you have to write it up. So you use a program called LaTeX and you type it up, but that's between you and the people reading your proof. So human beings' brains check mm. it. And it turns out that you can actually write math proofs in a way that machines can understand, and those are called dependently typed languages. And we have language like Agda and Isabel and other things that do that. And then suddenly you guys should get proof that the, the computer 
verifies that proof is correct. Most mathematicians don't do that. In fact, the 99.99% don't. And the problem with mathematics is it's become too specialized and overly abstract in certain respects. So you have a situation where a topologist won't read an algebraic geometers paper or an algebraic number theorist won't read an analytic number theorist paper. So when you publish, it takes a long time to publish, and then you have five people reading your paper who care about it. In fact, there's a lot of cases where like tier two, tier three, tier four mathematicians, they'll go their whole professional career with less than a thousand or 2000 citations and not a lot of collaboration in these things. The field is a bit dreary in that respect. The other thing is I was really interested in math problems like additive number theory problems. They were very foundational problems that we've known for a long time, hundreds of years or thousands of years, but have no solution. My favorite problem in that class was something called the Goldbach conjecture. This is a super easy problem to understand but you solved it. So it basically says any even number, an even number is like two, four, six, eight, and so forth, four or greater is equal to the sum of two prime numbers. So a prime number is a number that's only divisible by itself and one. So it seems like it should be true, like four is equal to two plus two, two and two are prime, okay. 16 is 11 plus five. And we've checked it to a huge array of numbers and it seems to hold, but no one knows why it's true. And it turns out it's one of the hardest problems in mathematics and all the great mathematicians have tried to work on it and no one's actually solved it. So the problem with loving unsolved problems is there's not much to publish. <laughs> if there's not much to publish, you can't really build a career. So then the other problem was that I started getting into the foundations of mathematics and I started asking questions like, does infinity really exist? And I went down the Arthur Finitis to train for a bit. And then I started thinking, well, like, how do we know the foundations of math are right? So I read Bertrand Russell's work and Gottlob Frege's work. And you know, it's called the principles of mathematics. This is huge thing, the Principia Mathematica. And, and it takes a thousand pages for them to show that one plus one equals two. And you're like, okay, this is pretty <laughs> dreary. And I got really crazy. And at some point the beard was very long. The personal hygiene disappeared. And I said, I need to take a break. I've gotten too deep and I've lost myself. I kind of was lost for a little bit and I was trying to figure out what to do. And at the same time, I started becoming a political firebrand. So I was very angry about the war in Iraq and Bush and all these other things. And I became a Ron Paul fan. And I love the whole libertarian movie because I was like, finally, somebody who has consistency says, choose liberty, follow the Constitution and no wars. So I can get behind that. Everybody can get behind that. And we just got screwed in 2008. The whole Republican Party kind of buried that liberty movement. And so then when Obama got elected, I was so excited. I said, OK, there's a new thing in town. And I'm so excited. Wall Street's just going to be burnt to the ground. This is going to be great. All these banks who said, screwed us. And then just like nothing happened. No, no, Goldman Sachs didn't go to jail. Morgan didn't go to jail. So it left me really pessimistic and really cynical. So then suddenly Bitcoin came out and this whole movement was talking about new money, a new financial system. It had a lot of monetary policy that was borrowed from things I was very comfortable with from the Ron Paul movement, like this concept of gold as money or deflationary monetary policy. So I had these analytic skills from the math world, and I'd done a lot of programming. So I had you know, cryptography skills, and I'd known about a lot of this stuff because there's a strong overlap between number theory and cryptography. And then I also had all this monetary policy knowledge. So I got really excited about the cryptocurrency space. The problem is I didn't know anybody. I'd never been an entrepreneur before. So I talked to an old professor of mine. I said, what should I do? And he said, those who cannot do teach. I said, that's very profound fortune cookie wisdom you got for me there. 
Thanks, Carl. So I created a free class and it was called the Bitcoin or how I learned to stop worrying and love crypto. My dad thought I was crazy. He said, what are you doing? You're dropping out. You're not actually going to go do this. You're like, are you going to live under a bridge? Are you going to become homeless? I said, don't worry, dad, I got this figured out. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to teach a free class. He's like, how will you make money if it's free? So don't worry. If you give, you shall receive. He's okay, let me know how that feeds you. So I released this free class on Udemy. I ended up getting 70,000 students. The class is still there. I got over 5,000 emails. I met everybody. Wow. I met Roger Ver. I met Eric Voorhees, all these different people, Andreas Antonopoulos. And one of my students was this crazy guy in China who had made a bunch of money from Bitcoin investing. And then he just calls me, cold calls me, says, hey, I want to give you a half million dollars to start a business. And I'm thinking... This is, I guess, the Nigerian prince scam of China or something like that. Okay, yeah, sure. You got a half million dollars for me. What, where do I wire the money? No, I'm totally serious. I want to give you money, find a business to create. So after doing some diligence, I found he was a real guy. And, and so I was left in this bizarre position where I've never really built a business before. I didn't know much about this stuff. And, and I had a VC investment before having a business or an idea which is just bizarre. So I went to Bitcoin. Wait, 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 Charles, you realize that never happens, right? It never happens. You're, you're typically and, scrounging and, and, and wait, let me just stop you for one second. Let me just unpack a little bit of this because you and I are so similar in many ways. My dad was a doctor. His sister was a doctor. He wanted me to be a doctor or one of his children at least, but you had the courage to say, ah, I'm good at it, but I don't like it. Go do something different in math realizing you were so good at it, but then still having the intestinal fortitude to pursue does infinity really exist and recognize that there were some limitations to the fulfillment you got out of math. Where'd you get the courage to stand up to your dad and say, I've got this figured out. I'm going to take, or I'm going to offer rather a free class. If you give, you shall I, receive. Where'd that come from? I didn't have to, at that stage of my life, stand up to my father. It was more of a, it was more of a just, a, it's like my family thought I was nuts type of a deal. <laughs> no, and, and I've always been that kind of loner who's never gone down the beaten path. My brother is like polar opposite from me. He's done everything right. He became a psychologist undergrad. Then he went, became a critical care nurse. And then he became a doctor. Like everything, bing, bing, boom, was just like all on rails. And he was perfect and everything. And so I was always the kid who's just like, screw everything. I'm just going to do something different. Like when you train as a mathematician, being an ultra finitist is being saying the moon landing didn't happen or something like that. It's a pretty, it's a pretty crazy assertion to even challenge the notion of whether infinity exists or not. And there's a couple of guys like Dorian Zeilberger and Norman uh, Wahlberger and others who, who, who think about that. And there's certainly some great books like Infinity and, and the Mind written by Rudy Rucker that, that explore these concepts. But my whole problem is I was like, guys, you're just assuming all these foundations are true and you haven't actually done the mental work to verify them yourself. Mm. And, and then you go off and do very specialized work. And that specialized work only exists is only real. If all those in things that you've assumed are true are actually true. Are you comfortable with that? And they're, oh yeah, don't worry about it. You have to publish, you have to publish. That's how you win the rat race. And I realized that academia for what it is. Most of the case, it's about branded reputation and it's about job security rather than actually going and solving big things and going and actually doing real interesting things. Now that's not to say all of academia is that way. There's certainly people who do those interesting things. But what I found is that in certain fields, that's more of the exception to the rule as opposed to the rule itself. A great example is artificial intelligence. 
the armchair understanding that we on the outside, normal people have about AI is they're trying to go and build like her, or they're trying to go and build like a Cortana or something. And they're trying to build this artificial general intelligence where I can have a conversation with it. It understands me. It can read my emails and give advice, this type of stuff. That's not what AI guys do. They go and do very narrow scope things in computer vision or machine learning or something. And they're trying to solve a very specific problem. And they're not thinking about cognition. They're not thinking about general intelligence or so forth. So if you enter AI with the goal of building artificial and general intelligence, you're probably not going to get publications. You're probably not going to get a faculty appointment and you're not going to get industrial work. Uh, so you're like Ben Gortzel or something. You're on the outside running a project yourself as opposed to actually being on the inside, unless you're super privileged and you're part of a very prestigious think tank that hasn't limited money. So they're like, give the AGA guys uh, a little bit of money. It's the same for these big problems in mathematics, like uh, the Riemann hypothesis or the Waring hypothesis or the Goldbach conjecture, these things. Uh, those problems are seldom worked on by graduate students and postdocs Almost always the people who make any progress are tenured professors who have already gotten their academic career. So they have the freedom to do whatever the heck they want to do. And so they'll like Terry Tower or something. They'll just go do that and they're above reproach. And every now and then they solve that. So I, I just didn't want to live a life like that. And the problem is that I was completely disenfranchised. I was 0 and 2. No medicine, <laughs> no math. Where do I go? What do I do? And, and the Bitcoin side, I, you're right. It never happens to have somebody just show up and say, hey, uh, I'm just going to give you all this stuff because I believe in you as a person. That's a very rare luck moment. And once I realized it for what it was, I said, it's a, it's a privilege. And, and I, I rolled the dice and I, and I got a critical. I, I'm good to go. Uh, I got to go do th this as a once in a lifetime gig. It's like winning the lottery in that particular respect. Wait, let go me ahead. understand something. So when you decided... Or when was that moment that you recognized math as good as you were at it and are at it, when you realized there were all these, there are dimples to math and there are warts, like to any discipline in any area. And you talked about solving problems. You talked about the different layers inside academia. And I would argue those layers are also in corporate America and in civil society. Right. But what was that moment of enlightenment for you? When did you figure that out? Some people go a lifetime, Charles, and don't figure that out because it allowed you to make a pivot. And I want to understand how you found that moment or what sparked it, it for you. It was a gradual process. It was really a gradual process. And eventually I just got fatigued and I said, I'm going to take some time off. And then gotcha. when I started taking time off, I was like, I can't go back. I'm just not going to do this right now. I'm not made of this at this particular muster because you have to, you, you, there's an old saying, you can endure any how if you know the why. Mm -hmm. So it, you can go through any brutality or any amount of mental trauma if you know where you're going and why you're going. But there was no end point for me. I said, okay, let's say I get to the postdoc level. Okay, well, then I'm working for practically nothing and beating myself up. Let's say I get to the tenure professor level. It's, I can do the types of things I would do as a tenure professor at home myself. I'm not particularly interested in publishing or these types of things. And I'm not particularly interested in just going to conferences and convincing people I'm smart. Mathematics is a very personal thing. It's just something I really enjoy doing and thinking about. I wasn't particularly interested on the system outside of the meta parts of mathematics, the philosophy of mathematics, and also 
the way that things are done, the way proofs are written, the way that we think about set theory, the way that we think about logic and these types of things. The problem there is that amongst mathematicians, that's a rare thing. There's logicians and set theorists and that they live off in the corner and mathematicians already live off in the corner. So there's a corner within a corner, you know, for that type of stuff. And there's great people who do that, like Jeremy Avogad over at CMU and Wooden over at Berkeley. But there's five guys and, and they're very cushy and no one talks to them and they're geniuses in their own. But I didn't really think that was a good outcome. The other thing is that if I really wanted to do something there, I'd like to run like a Manhattan Project style thing where I go and spend lots of time with lots of people and we just rewrite everything. You can't just say, let's go redo the foundations of math as an individual. This is an effort that will take dozens or hundreds of mathematicians and computer scientists working systematically for a multi-decade formula to do. The last time we rewrote mathematics happened in the late 19th century under David Hilbert. That's how long it's been. It's been a very long time. And also there's no economic value to that. You can't sell that to a board. You can't go and say, hey, Bob, uh, go do this. You know, How many widgets do I get out of it? What, what are you talking about? This is math. You don't get, I know. I, I you feel know. you. I feel you, my friend. So let's talk yeah. about the, the gentleman who reaches from across the globe and says to you, I believe in you and what you're doing. Because it sounds like that was a seminal moment for you. Once you realized he was a real person, it wasn't a scam. He really right. was interested in what you're trying to do because this pivot toward entrepreneurship, and we're gonna talk about cryptocurrency. I'm gonna ask you to define some of these terms, but it sounds like instead of trying to rewrite math or challenge the foundational issues, you said, here's a blank sheet of paper over here. Let me start from the ground up and write what we think is correct in this new system, develop a new ecosystem over here in another place, in another space, like designing, developing, and driving the future. So talk about, if you could, recognizing you had an opportunity to do something brand new and develop and design and drive the future. Yeah, so Lee Shalai was the uh, the guy he ran something called Bitfund. And Lee said, hey, let's go do something. So I, I first had to figure out what to do. So I, I crowdsourced it. I went to Bitcoin Talk and I had this ah. thread called uh, Project Invictus. And I said, okay, what would make Bitcoin or crypto indestructible, like indomitable, undefeatable? That's why I called it Invictus after a Hensley poem. And so anyway, I had a lot of responses. I had bimodal distribution. So about half the people were talking about decentralized exchange and half the people were talking about stable coins. So mm -hmm. we had two very big problems and we still have them in the cryptocurrency space, although they're less of an issue today than they were in 2013. The first problem is that Bitcoin is very volatile. Cryptos are very volatile. The value goes way up and it goes way down. You have a volatile currency, it's useless as a unit of account and a means of exchange. Because if you're running like Walmart, you sell something for $5, your margins are maybe 5% or 10%. You can't be a currency speculator and $5 is now worth $4 or $5 is now worth $10 or something like that. That doesn't work. So you need stability. You need it either to be pegged to the dollar or you need it to be pegged to something that is to inflation. Like right now we're having a big inflation problem with the US dollar itself. So Absolutely. we printed all this money and now all of a sudden you go and try to buy timber, lumber, it's 100% more expensive than it was just six months ago. So if you're building a house, it's like twice as much. It's crazy. One was how do you create stable currencies? The other question was decentralized exchange. So what happens when you want to go from Bitcoin into dollars or Bitcoin into euros or euros into Cardano, into ADA? 
or to Ether or any of these things. You should, what, use what's called an exchange for that. And there's tons of exchanges. There's Coinbase and Bittrex and Binance. At the time in 2013, the largest cryptocurrency exchange was something called Mt. Gox. And it turned out that whole thing was uh, basically a scam. Mt. Gox was really? not running. It wasn't solvent. There were a lot of problems with the management. So we all knew that in the crypto space that we were worried that was an existential risk. And so we said, can we build an exchange where it's decentralized? So instead of a company and a corporation, it's run the same way Bitcoin is run with nobody in charge, nobody owning it. And because of that, it's predictable and fraud free. So I tried to put both of those together into a single product. And ultimately, that product didn't work out, but we launched it. And I learned a huge amount along the way. It was like a trial by fire because I'd never been an entrepreneur before. I didn't really have uh, these skill sets. And it, it was just crazy. I figured out how to do corporate bank accounts. I had to figure mm. out how to do payroll and do the W-2. <laughs> and I never went to business school. I didn't know how any of this stuff worked. And it was just reading a lot of books and watching a lot of YouTube videos and talking to a lot of people. And it was just a brutally difficult thing. The other thing is the founder that I did that company was the very first person who replied on that thread on Bitcoin Talk. And I didn't know anything like how to do a founder's agreement. And I didn't understand that maybe you should be very discriminating with your founders and and so forth that these are getting married i really look at it that way and so we fought all the time i liked his dad but we fought all the time and eventually because there was two of him two larimers and one charles i i took a buyout and said i can't do this anymore so i was owing one and i was like okay i'm not a very good entrepreneur although the investor he made a lot of money off of that company so lee was happy but i i was owing one and then later on through another contact i met anthony diorio he ran this thing called the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada. And they said, hey, we saw your educational stuff. We really like it. Uh, can we use it for BAC? I said, sure, no problem. So I started working with them on education stuff. And then he said, it was like a side note, like a little side. He said, oh, by the way, uh, we have this really smart kid. He's 19. He comes in all the time for the meetings. His name's Vitalik Buterin. And he has this idea called Ethereum. Can you read the white paper? So I said, sure. So I read the white paper and I had some comments on it and so forth. And I said, what do you want to do with it? He said, we're not sure, but we have some meetings. You want to join those meetings? I said, fine. So I joined those meetings and for about six months, I was on the, the Ethereum train. And then at some point, we just had to have a divorce because uh, I wanted to do like a proper company, do it for profit, have founders agreements. Because I, I was looking at the, the way things were structured, and I was really worried that nobody had any incentive to stick around after the project was launched. And I said, well, you need golden handcuffs, you need vesting, you need these standard things. And they said, no, 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 we're going to do it as an open source project. I said, yeah, but everybody's getting paid up front. So whether they stick around for a day or a year, they get the same output, but that makes no sense. So it didn't work out for me. And so I was 0-2. So I was pretty disgruntled at that point. I was like, I am a terrible entrepreneur. I don't have any no, of this No, but look at how work. much you were learning, what you recognize even from the first engagement to the second engagement, which oftentimes people give up, but you didn't. You went on to number three. Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty crazy. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. So I'm not a mathematician and I'm not a doctor, but I'm definitely a masochist. So and so anyway, what happened is I said, all right, I, I got an invitation to do a TED Talk in Bermuda. And I said, right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go do that TED Talk. And then I'm done with crypto. I'm done with this industry. We'll go do something else. I'm going to go live under that bridge. My dad told me I'm going to go live under. Uh, it'll be great. I'll change my name to some troll name and, it, uh, and maybe I'll make money from the tolls or something. Who knows? So I went to Bermuda. I did a TED Talk and it was just incredibly popular. And then I had some people from Japan who reached out to me and said, hey, we really like what you said. Can you come to Japan and talk about doing a venture with us? 
And I was thinking to myself, okay, Japan is fun. I like sushi. That's, that's going to be interesting. <laughs> so I flew out to Osaka and then I spent months negotiating with them. And then eventually they uh, gave me a deal to start like the Ethereum of Japan. And that became Cardano. And for six years, I've been running my company now. And I said, this company, I'm going to do things my way. No, no more founder stuff. And uh, I, I'm going to be very principled about it. We're going to do a research-driven approach. We're going to do really formal engineering. And uh, been running now for six years. We've grown from two people when I started this, 300 people. And now we're a multi-billion dollar company. So it's, it's, it's just been a crazy journey to go through all this. And those 300 employees are more than 40 countries. We do government contracting, like with the government of Ethiopia, and we do things with the government of uh, Georgia, the country. Uh, we've been in Mongolia. I've been to 52 countries since starting wow. my uh, my company. I've met thousands of people. It's been a wild ride, an absolutely wild ride. And every day is uh, kind of a new challenge. And you meet new people from heads of state, rock stars. I met Steve Miller and the CCR guys because they came to play a, a conference that I did. And also launching a cryptocurrency that's successful, it's almost like Fight Club. I'll never forget this story. I was in Vancouver flying Air Canada back to Colorado. And the guy was checking me in. He was just got a really weird vibe from him. And I was like, why is he looking at me? What's going on? And at the end, right before he hands me my, my tickets, he leans over and says, I love Ada. <laughs> oh just like Tyler God. Dirt and Fight Club. And I was like, wow, this is so crazy. And I've been recognized at airports. I get I was once recognized by passport control at uh, London Heathrow. Just random people all over. I'm a big fan of the Rick and Morty show. And the guy who does the voice for Rick and Morty, Justin Roiland, reached out to me over Twitter. And he's actually in the Cardano ecosystem. So it's just crazy, the people that you meet and the, the impact that you have. But what's most meaningful is that I get all the time letters from fans. I actually have one right here. And they send them to you. Uh, wow. And they, they tell you where they're at in life. And like I mentioned that I have a farm. So they say, oh, I do beekeeping. I was like, oh, that's so cool. I was like, oh, I grow hay. Or I mentioned that I'm going to start a mushroom farm at some point. And I, like a mushroom farmer, will reach out to me and say, if you ever need any advice or tips, okay. And then people send me pictures of their tattoos. I'll never forget this story. This is something you're going to love. Charles, I love Ada. I love Ada. I said, oh, that's great. And he said, let me show you something. So we're in the conference hall. There's like a thousand people. This was pre-COVID. And he pulls his pants down. And he has a tattoo of my face on his left butt cheek. What? And I, just, I was just like looking at him. I just like time froze for a second. I said, is that permanent? And he's, yes, it's permanent. Like my love for you. Oh my goodness. Like, what do you say with that guy? And, and he, I, please pull up your pants. Uh, and then he asked for a picture. Of course, we have to get a picture together. The guy tattooed my face on his ass. Oh uh, so, my God. Talk about loving Cardano and loving I know. All all the work it's incredible here's here's the thing what the last six years have been it sounds fabulous in a way it is a little bit scary but exciting all at the same time that you are doing something totally new it took you three tries to get there but now success has come to life in so many different ways let me drill down a little bit more so i can understand the whole cryptocurrency Bitcoin, the Cardano ecosystem, help me understand most people don't even, and I include myself, we're just all learning about it. 
cryptocurrency, blockchain technology. Can you explain blockchain first? Because this is one of the things you've studied and been so successful at with not only your investors, but just running your own company and teaching your own folks and running your own life. Talk to me a little bit about blockchain technology. When I first heard about it some five years ago, I guess, I remember asking a couple of folks and they said, oh, it's a scam. It's not a real thing. Clearly they were wrong and they were fearful. You have been faithful to the process of learning about this and helping to develop it. So can you explain blockchain technology for me? Yeah. So what gets so crazy is that people get confused with the money and the volatility and the fact that all these people are getting rich so quickly and, and that they lose the plot and they don't really get what we're trying to do. So the easiest way of explaining blockchain is that it's basically like a trust engine. And so there's all kinds of things in life where groups of people, companies, individuals, corporations, governments, they need to work together for some common problem for the greater good of society or their customers or an outcome. And that could be something like we need to distribute vaccines or we need to solve global warming or that or like cell phones. You travel from United States to Canada. You need to go from your U.S. telco like Verizon to a Canadian telco because you want data. You want to right. be able to call people. You want to do that stuff. All of those things, thousands of them. Uh, I, For example, I could get sick all the time I travel throughout Africa. And I'm always thinking to myself, what if I'm in Tanzania and I'm walking through a car hits me and some Tanzanian doctor calls my doctor in Colorado be like, hey, by the way, uh, Charles is unconscious, but I'm treating this guy. Can you send me all his medical records? I need to know what's going on. Yeah, sure. Hang up on him. So how does that medical record get from Colorado to Tanzania or something like that? So it's trust. You have to have trust. You have to have authorization. You have to have these types of things. And for it's my good as a medical consumer, for your ability to access a phone or for us to get vaccines to all the people who need them, whatever it might be. So the problem is the way we tend to do that is with lots of lawyers, bespoke agreements, treaties, and it only works some of the time. I had an old friend who says it works 90% to 50% of the time. So, you know, that's basically the case. You know, 45% of the time it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. And every time it doesn't work, it hurts us. Either people starve to death or people don't get medicine or people's phones don't work or your business can't do business with people. Over 3 billion people, for example, are underbanked or unbanked. Some in the United States, some in Africa, some in Eastern Europe, some in Southwest Asia. doesn't really matter where they come from. What matters is because they're underbanked or unbanked, they can't globalize, hmm. which means that they have a hard time getting a loan. They have a hard time preserving their wealth. For example, if an event happens, they lose everything. And if you want to send money, let's say you're a maid in London and you send money home to your mom in the Philippines, on average, that remittance transaction is 15%. So you send 100 pounds home, 15 pounds disappear, just moving the money to your mom. So these are some of the poorest people in the world. And they pay some of the highest fees for financial services. Let's say you want to get a loan, a microfinance transaction. The average microfinance rates are about 35% to 85% interest. You borrow 100 bucks next year, you'll 135 at best case. And there's, again, are some of the poorest people in the world just because they don't have access to great financial services. And why is that? Because the trust systems aren't working properly. So the point of blockchain is basically being a decentralized, immutable, time-stamped ledger that you can store stuff in. Maybe it's an identity. Maybe it's your property ledger. Maybe it's your vote, making sure your vote was properly recorded, whatever it is. And collectively, that everybody played the same game. Everybody played the same rules. So it doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates or the f shepherd from Senegal, you both get treated equal. 
by the system. So you have the same payment system, the same identity system, the same property ledger, and all these things. That's really the point of our industry. So the value of that to society is incalculably large. It's in the trillions of dollars because you're literally bringing 3 billion new people into the economy. You're liquefying trillions of dollars of illiquid wealth. Uh, you're creating the ability for people to do business with people they've never had the ability to do business with before. And also you're massively reducing waste, fraud, and abuse. Also, it's the only way to solve collective problems. For example, how do you solve the problem of sustainable agriculture? For example, when Starbucks wakes up and says, hey, we're only going to buy coffee beans from farmers who can prove that they're following sustainable agricultural practices, that's devastating to a lot of people in Ethiopia or Indonesia or Colombia, because a lot of these farmers are smallholder farmers. They live on less than a hectare of land. How they harvest hog coffee beans, how their granddad did, how their great granddad did. They take them, they put them on the back of a donkey, they ride them to a washing station, they sell them there and they get cash and there you go. How do they prove that they were following proper fertilizer and this and that, all these other things? There's no system in place for that. So when you make a statement like that, it feels good, but in reality, what you're doing is you're disenfranchising all the small guys and only the big guys can prove that. So the point of these systems is how do you build them in a way where they work for the small guy as much as they do the big guy? And that's really what we focus on as a company. And it's tremendously challenging. There's a lot of science you have to do because you have to verify that the system is secure and can't be attacked or gamed. There's a lot of engineering you have to do because it can't just work on a cell phone or a laptop or a desktop like we have, but it has to work in places that don't have internet. It has to work in places where people don't have very powerful computing devices. Maybe they just have feature phones or something like that. And then there's also a lot of education and social dynamics that you have to work on because this system doesn't need, central parties don't just take, they give. So when you have bank account, if there's fraud, you have banker you can call. If you hold a cryptocurrency, there's no banker you can call to say, hey, I've been defrauded. Can you please reverse the transaction and help me out? So you have to figure out how do you build an economy where there's nothing at the center, everything's at the edges. There's a lot more power that you have, I have, but with power comes responsibility. So that's basically blockchain in a nutshell. It's just all it is. It's just a way of having people, businesses, individuals, whatever, trust each other in new ways. And anything you put in those ledgers is timestamped. So that timestamp can't be changed. So if I say it happened March 30th, 2021, it happened March 30th, 2021. There's not going to be a change there. It's immutable. So the data that you put in, if even if it's inconvenient to America or to China or to Russia, they can't show up and change it, change the ledger. So it's real nice for voting, real nice for property. Especially in Africa, we see a lot of land problems where the corporations or governments will come and they'll just change the land registry and say, oh yeah, I know you've lived there for 40 years, but you don't own that. Sorry, we own it now because they control that ledger. So the land can't be changed. Okay, the things you put in can't be changed. And it's auditable, meaning everybody can see it. Th those are there. So the Bitcoin ledger, for example, every Bitcoin transaction since January 3rd, 2009, when Bitcoin launched, is visible. Every single transaction. Anyone can see those transactions. It's not, trust me, you get to be your own auditor. You get to verify these types of things. And you can do that for any system. It can be medical records. It can be contracts being signed. It could be voting records. Whatever it happens, you have a scalability of transparency there. And you can introduce privacy if you want, or you can be completely transparent, but that's part of the design of the system. So that's the technology. And then there's flavors of the technology, like Bitcoin is a flavor, Ethereum is a flavor, Cardano is a flavor. Those are interpretations and implementations, just like an operating system is a concept. 
and Android is an operating system. Windows is an operating system. You know, iOS is an operating system. So those are implementations of a concept. But the general idea of an operating system is it runs your phone or your laptop or your computer. Similar, the general idea of a blockchain is it runs a business domain, maybe a supply chain to prove that your meat is safe or we actually have a bottle of Cardano wine here. This is a vineyard in Napa Valley. That, and so at some point, we'll put a QR code and you'll be able to scan it and see where the grapes came from and who made it. And if you like it, tip the guy who picked the grapes, that type of stuff. So these are the things. The blockchain sits in a business domain. And then basically your flavor is uh, is the particular protocol. Maybe it's Cardano or Ethereum or Bitcoin and so forth. And they do specific things. Yeah. So I want to talk about Cardano in just a second. But let me go back to blockchain and the safety and the security of it, because this is a new system. We are all accustomed to banks. They're the intermediary in the business world. For example, we know it doesn't work for everybody. And you talked about all the people, 3 billion people who are unbanked, under-resourced. This seems like such a plausible solution, but obviously it's brand new and your business is doing incredibly well. It's an introduction though. You're like the tip of the spear. It sounds like I I immediately start thinking about voting systems. I live in the state of Georgia. We know that the folks who are in charge today, the governor and the legislature, and they're just one of 43 states and 43 legislatures controlled by folks who are interested in maintaining power have begun to disenfranchise those of us who want to participate in the process. And it sounds like blockchain is a system that will enfranchise and distribute power across the environment, the universe, the ecosystem, whatever we're talking about. Why the hell isn't everybody using this, Charles? Get up here. Listen, you are the professor. Why aren't you teaching everybody about this now? Like, I know you did the free course, but dude, this is so applicable and could be so helpful in so many ways. Come on, professor. What's happening? Yeah. So Lisa, what's amazing is just uh, less than uh, like about 12 years, we've gone from nothing to a trillion dollar industry with tens of millions of people. I was in Mongolia years ago and I was out riding camels in the Gobi Desert. And uh, through a translator, I was talking to the camel herder who owned the camels. And he asked me what I did for a living. And I said, oh, I'm a kind of, it's a weird thing. I'm a cryptocurrency entrepreneur. And he said, you mean Bitcoin? (laughs) This guy's a camel nomad living in the desert in Mongolia. And he knows about Bitcoin. And, and I was like, holy moly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he said, yeah, I own some. I was like, how do you own Bitcoin? You're out in the middle of the desert. He said, my brother holds on to it for me. He lives in Ulan Bader. I think we're doing pretty good about the propagation of things. And really uh, what happens is that people have to see the systems work at scale and they to trust them. And right. that takes about 10 or 20 years. So like the internet, for example, it came out in the 1970s. And you had all these like nerds with the big beards at MIT say, oh, this internet thing is going to be amazing. And they were telling us about that in the 1980s. But consumer adoption didn't really happen until the 90s. And then it didn't get good until the 2000s, 2010s. And that's fair enough, the fair enough. And these things. So there's always that wave. And there's a lot of difficulty in pricing and picking winners and losers and these types of things. And that's where the industry's at right now. That we're finding our Googles and our Microsofts and our Facebooks. But that's it. The pedagogy is phenomenal. There's a lot of great free courses. Princeton University did one that's on Coursera. It's free. And it explains how all this stuff works. The current chairman of the Securities Exchange Commission, Gensler, that Biden just appointed, yes. uh, he actually taught at MIT before he got appointed. And he actually taught a free class on 
cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. So it's amazing to see that not only have we reached the point where the government actually understands what we're doing, the people running the government, many cases are actually competent enough to actually teach the, the classes. The other thing that gets me really excited is that there are nation states that really view this as a way of restoring trust, faith, and credibility in their nation state. So for example, Ethiopia has this issue where they have a bad brand from the past and now they have new management and the new management is really smart. Uh, the, the current prime minister is a cryptographer. He can actually read the papers we write. Really oh, bright guy. Yeah. It's like a huge contrast between him and Joe Biden. You know, Biden's like 79, he's a real old guy. And you talk, this guy, he's young and spry. He's like, he broke codes during the Eritrean war. He's a really brilliant guy. So we say, hey, here's what we've read. He's oh yeah, I can read your papers. It's like, Great. There's very few politicians in the world could do that. He's leading an African government. So you have a huge mismatch between the brand and the reality. And then second, you look at the demographics of Ethiopia, 70% of the population is at or under the age of 30. And they're all digital, internet enabled. They're taking classes from Harvard online. So there's this huge appetite for social change, organizational change, systemic change. So what's going to happen in my view is that those emergent economies that are growing very quickly, pre-COVID, Ethiopia was growing 10 to 15% per year, are going to be the first adopters of this mm. type of technology in order to restore trust, faith, and credibility in their rule of law, their voting systems, their governance systems, and these other things. And people say, I don't care if it's an African country. It's beyond reproach because they're using this system. We know that system is secure. Then people in America living in Georgia or Colorado or Wyoming are going to start asking, why does Ethiopia have a better voting system than we do? This is madness. <laughs> why can they vote on their phone? I want to be able to do that. That's crazy. And they're going to demand it. And then the politicians will hem and haw. But what will happen is we'll lose our competitive edge and then we'll start, our economy will start slowing down. And as it starts costing the big guys money, they'll say, we need to change. No newspaper in the world was pro-internet. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, they didn't really, they're this internet thing. We're not so sure about that. But they knew that they had to adopt it and change their business model. And the ones that didn't, they went out of business. And so that's the same view that I have. I think blockchain is one of those things that when you adopt it, you gain so much efficiency, so much reduction of waste, fraud, and abuse. And ultimately, your social systems have much more faith and credibility, so they have higher participation, more participation, more ideas, faster sure. growing economy, more innovation, more entrepreneurship, better small business owners, stronger middle class. You're just a better country. And then eventually, at some point, those countries are more competitive than the incumbents, and then the incumbents have to change or die. Their economies will collapse, in essence. So I hope it comes to America, but... After the Ron Paul thing, we just tried the audit the Federal Reserve. We're like, These are the guys who print the money. Maybe we should audit them. At least your bank goes through an audit every year. Why is the guy who's printing the money not go through an audit? We couldn't get the audit the Fed done. It was so crazy. Uh, it, political change is sometimes so incredibly difficult. It's just uh, basic things like when we tax people, can we get a accounting of where our money actually goes? Basic stuff like that. I think everybody would agree. But then when you actually ask for it, they say, nah, we're not going to do that for you. We're not going to give you a report card or KPIs or these types of things. And even when people try, like I'll give Obama huge kudos. He was one of the first guys to come in and try to do open source data in the U.S. government. So he went to every bureaucracy and said, all your data sets are no longer proprietary. They have to be open source and accessible so that other people can come in and look at those data sets. And that was like the first step in a major transparency movement. He spent eight years just 
was pushing people and he couldn't get it done. And he was a very powerful politician, very charismatic, very talented, very good at execution. And so if you have a guy like that with for a long time political power base that can't get the bureaucracy to thaw, I think the only way to do it is economic means, not political. You don't vote your way out of it. You, you get dollars out of it and you get enough of them. Eventually the system will change. Uh, agreed. And it sounds like there's it's a bottom up approach as opposed to a top down. Yeah. I agree with you on Obama and all the work that he tried to do. And yes, he spent eight years. But this country is how old like these institutions have been established and ingrained created, cultivated, curated for hundreds of years. So no excuse, just part of an explanation. But this notion of trust, faith, and credibility and restoring it is so powerful after we've gone through four years of folks trying to deconstruct in a negative way things that were halfway working. But what you're introducing or talking about introducing as I listen to the story about Ethiopia and the leader who can read the cryptography papers. It's really fascinating to me. Can you talk a little bit about cryptography? And then let's talk about Cardano and open source and what you're trying to do today to make not just Ethiopia and Africa and different parts of the world, but all of us, the U.S. included. Start with cryptography. Let's, because I understand it, it, undergirds a lot of this. Yeah. Let's, could you explain that for me? Yeah. So cryptography is the science of secure communication and they really focus on, there's a good acronym, SENA, and it stands for confidentiality, integrity, non-repudiation, and authentication. And then you also throw a K on for knowledge. CNAC. You know, that, I like that's it. Not, I like that's it. not a, uh, that's not exactly the most memorable of acronyms, but anyway, uh, the basic idea is that if you have Alice and Bob and they want to talk to each other securely, they need some way of doing that. And then you make some assumptions. Are they able to talk to each other and pre-share some information? And that's called symmetric crypto. Or are they not able to meet up and they can't pre-share? That's called asymmetric crypto or public key cryptography. And then you have authentication. So those are like signatures. And so signatures are basically saying, hey, how do you know Bob really signed that? How do you know Bob actually put his name on the contract? So you have something called a digital signature and that's non-reputable which basically means that he can't forge it. Only Bob could have done that. Then you have things like integrity. So for example, when I show you the contract, how do you know that's the real contract? So we have things called hashes that actually do that for us. And authentication has to do a lot with how do you know Bob is Bob? How do you know that's his identity or so forth? And then knowledge are things like zero knowledge cryptography, where which is a beautiful, magical thing. And the easiest way of explaining that is our identity systems or our, our knowledge systems are, are usually not very granular. So for example, when you go to the bar and you say, hey, I'll take a beer, you're a young gal, so they'll probably check your ID and they'll say, okay, Lisa, show us your show us your driver's license. How do you know you're over 21? And when you show that driver's license to them, they don't just get your age. They also get your address. If you're an organ donor, some states, they put their social security, all this stuff, right? So that's the problem with these systems. And then look at social scale problems. Like for example, let's say the Health and Human Services says, we want to know how many people in the African-American community above the age of 50 who have heart disease, who are male, contracted coronavirus in Tennessee? Legitimate question, probably is going to come up somewhere. How you solve that problem without cryptography is that somebody has to go and aggregate all the medical records together, and he's going to know which person has herpes, which person does it, all this stuff. And we just have to trust that guy not to say anything, okay? And and then he'll give you the answer. It'll it'll be uh, 430. Okay, what zero-knowledge cryptography does is it gives you the ability to answer the specific query without revealing anything else. 
So you'll be able to say something like you're 26 uh, or you're over the age of 21. Yes. True, false. That's it. Won't even give you the age if you don't want it to. Or give you the number like, yeah, there are 433 people that match the query, but nobody had to go and aggregate the records together and reveal that personally identifiable information and so forth. So these are the kinds of problems that cryptographers think about. And they think about it with what's known as an adversary. So an adversary is basically a, a, a construct. It's, a, it's basically a person who's trying to break your scheme and you give them capabilities. Do they have a quantum computer or just a classical computer? Can they, do they have access to your computer or are they just intercepting the message over a communication line or something like that? So you have all kinds of attacks like a chosen plain text and a chosen cipher text and all these other things and cryptographers talk about them and they create models for them. And then what they try to do is prove that a system is secure against a class of adversary. So all day long, a cryptographer is always talking about an adversary, Alice and Bob and security. And they create a proof, a mathematical proof that shows that you are secure against an attack. Or they try to show that a particular scheme is vulnerable to a certain class of attack. So this is an academic domain. The application is called information security. It's the, the brother of cryptography or the sister of cryptography. And information security is about actual application of cryptography in human context. For example, I say, okay, I, I can encrypt a message but where am I doing that? On a mm. cell phone, a laptop, a desktop? And how do I know that computer is secure where that private key is stored or something like that? Or who has access to that computer? How do we know that uh, your access control system is right or something like that? Or how do you avoid social engineering? How do we avoid that somebody impersonating you? For example, this happens all the time with SIM boosting, where people will impersonate somebody and say, oh, hey, T-Mobile or hey, Verizon. I'm Charles, and then say, hey, I need you to switch my number, port it over from this SIM card to this other SIM card. I lost my phone. Then once they have it, they have access to your SIM card and anything tied to your phone, you can now. So that's two-factor authentication normally works, assuming you have control over your number <laughs> and your phone. But what if the attacker can just tell the phone company to switch it over? That's a vulnerability. So that's what information security thinks about. It's basically a holistic approach to security and a realistic adversary with human intention and economic incentives. And you always build security against different classes of adversaries. So in the information security world, we think about economic means and power means. In the cryptography world, we have a hypothetical adversary. So for example, in IS, information security, you would say something like, okay, I want to be secure against my neighbor who's 18 years old and knows how to hack into computers because he took a class on Udemy. Okay. Versus I want to be secure against organized crime, which has people with computer science degrees and years of hacking and so forth, because they make millions of dollars doing this. Or I want to be secure against a nation state like Russia or North Korea. So the information security people that work for the Department of Commerce or the NSA or the U.S. government, Department of Defense, they're trying to protect against China hacking into their systems or Russia hacking into their systems. And sometimes they get that done, sometimes they don't. The information security people that work at, let's say, an average mid-sized company, they're just trying to protect against industrial espionage and organized crime. And the information security people like you and me, we're just trying to make sure our passwords don't get stolen. Absolutely. We're just trying to make sure that our, you know, our phone doesn't get hacked or these types of things. So there's different levels of that. And that's what information security studies. And that's a little academic in that you'll have to understand how crypto works. And the Bible there is Anderson's textbook. It's like a thousand pages long. And you have certifications like CISSP and CEH, Certified Ethical Hacker, and these things. On the cryptography side, that's much more math 
much more academic. They tend to work at universities or intelligence agencies. They have PhDs. They write very deep papers. And when you open them up, they have all these strange math symbols and so <laughs> forth. The information security people are doing penetration testing. They're writing code. And they're also doing on-site surveillance. So, for example, when they set up a network, they'll actually go to where the network's at. And they'll look around and be like, hey, I don't know about that window over there. Your front door is really secure and the key card, but I, I think they can just get through that window or something. Like I had a friend, he worked at a, a secure, it was called a SCIF, and that's that's for classified information and so forth. And they had a very tight security. So you had to use a CAC card and a fingerprint and a code to get into the door. So you put card in, you type a code in, then you put your fingerprint and unlocks it. So, and the security guard would escort you everywhere when you get up to go to the bathroom. So he left his card in his cubicle and he went to go to the bathroom and he comes back and he can't open the door because he didn't have his card. Then he realized that the ceiling tiles, it was a false ceiling. So he could just push the tile up and climb into the office <laughs> over this really secure door that they had. So that's what an information security person like thinks about. It's not just the cryptographer builds the lock system for the door and will write a proof and say, hey, this lock works and, it, and nobody can hack it. But the information security guy is like, I don't care about the door. I can just go through the ceiling. Understood. Right? Makes complete sense. At the end of the day, most people, and this is why you're the professor, they want to know that the crypto, uh, the cryptography system or the lock, if you will, is in place and that it's operational, but they really want you to tell them the time, not build them a watch. So right. we, we are trying to understand as traditional people, Jane and John Q. Citizen walking down the street, that this stuff actually works. And I know we're all familiar with the authentication processes for our phones and for our computers, but we don't really understand it, Charles. We just right. hope and pray that it in effect works. But this is the system, whether it's the academic portion, which obviously it starts there with cryptography, but then the application of it, you talked about the different flavors of right. this coming to life. Talk about Cardano, because that's your flavor. And I really want to understand the Cardano ecosystem. As I've started a new venture here, I'm interested in the non-fungible tokens and starting all of this for my own company and going deep. So tell me about Cardano and your ecosystem and the open platform and all of that. Yeah, so the easiest way of understanding Cardano is in context to the rest of the industry. So in the beginning, there was Bitcoin. That was the first cryptocurrency. And we call that a first-generation cryptocurrency. And so you always ask, what problem were they trying to solve? What did they accomplish? So generation one was all about saying, can we have decentralized money? Can we have some email for money? Can we have something where I can just click a button and send an arbitrary large amount of value to somebody anywhere in the world and they just get it like they get an email? And there's no central party that controls that. No one can stop it. I am my own bank. So that was a crazy idea. And all the prior attempts like uh, DigiCash and Bcash and th these things from the 80s and 90s had failed. So Bitcoin comes out and for a while it wasn't really clear if it was going to work or not. And then after enough people adopted it, markets formed, the security of the system grew. It got to a point that, yeah, Bitcoin is here to stay. And the big moment there was when the market cap got over a billion dollars and VC started coming in and Silicon Valley started building things that people say, this Bitcoin thing is a good idea. The problem with Bitcoin is that it's blind and deaf and it, it doesn't really understand the world around it. Okay, you can only do one thing. You can send mm -hmm. a Bitcoin to somebody else. You can send a unit of value to somebody else. You can't issue your own currency. 
like I talk about that stable coin, for example, I can't do that natively. You can't do complex financial applications. Let's say you, for example, want to do a decentralized lending market. So I can give a loan in a peer-to-peer way or insurance in a peer-to-peer way or something. You can't do any of that stuff. So everybody started saying, we like Bitcoin, but we, we want programmability. It's like when JavaScript came to the web browser, before that happened, every website was static. So you could have really pretty websites that have great pictures and nice fonts and you want to design a word or something, but you can't have Facebook. You can't have YouTube. You can't have those things. You need programmability and interactability to right. be able to have those types of experiences. The user has to be able to enter something and something returns. And that's the realm of JavaScript. So we said, could we, this was the second generation. Can we add a programming language to a blockchain? And then suddenly I can now issue my own currency and suddenly I can now have dApps and DeFi and all these other cool things. And that's Ethereum. That's what Ethereum brought in 2013. Okay. But the problem with Ethereum, and this is the problem with all these smart contracts, is is there's three different problems. One is it doesn't scale. So as more people join the system, you only have a finite pool of resources, so it gets more expensive to run. So the easiest way of visualizing that is imagine you have friends over for dinner. If you only cook one turkey and you only cook a couple of sides, if you invite 10 more people, 20 more people, it means everybody's getting less turkey. Everybody's getting less dinner. So that's where Ethereum is at. And that's why transaction fees are right now so incredibly high and the resources are so constrained. Rather, you want something that scales that as people come, they bring food with them like a potluck. So that everybody has something to eat. You can always feed everybody in a certain respect. Uh, so there are protocols that do that. BitTorrent is the greatest example of this. And that's just for data. It's not for cryptocurrency, but it's conceptually really easy to get. When you download a really popular movie on BitTorrent, you get it really quickly. Like Game of Thrones, for example, or the latest Hollywood film like Avengers or something. You just get it really fast. If you try to download like Pee Wee's Playhouse or something like that, probably there's the three people downloading that. Uh, you get it really slow. So the more people, the faster it gets. Instead of more people, the slower it gets. You want that type of property. We don't currently have that. So there was a scalability concern. Second, there's interoperability. And the easiest way of understanding that is through Wi-Fi, because that's like universal interoperability. So imagine a world if Wi-Fi only worked with your device manufacturer. So in other words, uh, your Apple phone can only connect to an Apple router. Your Google phone can only connect to a Google router. Your Samsung phone can only connect to Samsung. Wi-Fi would be horrifically broken. You'd walk into the hotel and they'd say, oh, I'm sorry, uh, we're an iPhone-only hotel. We don't support it. It's like it wouldn't work. But instead, Wi-Fi is a truly interoperable protocol. You, North Korea, South Korea, Iran, Israel, Russia, China, America, these countries collectively agree on nothing. But your phone can connect to the hotel Wi-Fi and all of them. So that's an interoperable protocol if you really think about it. And so that's what we need. There's over 8,000 cryptocurrencies and there's tons of legacy financial systems like SWIFT and FIX and the BS, uh, BIS and so forth. And none of these things currently talk to each other. So we need a Wi-Fi moment in our industry where you can move value information and data between an identity between different systems. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's this governance problem. This is the who pays and who decides, the sustainability issue of the system. So the problem with Bitcoin and Ethereum is that they grow to a point where their innovation rate and their feature development rate slows down. A, because it becomes very expensive to innovate above a certain point. You have to do research and write papers and hire cryptographers and lots of prototyping. And somebody has to pay for that. And over time, it becomes less and less certain who's going to do that. And then the other problem is that there's too many, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. 
it's hard to decide what's for dinner when you have 12 chefs. Okay. <laughs> and so when you have all these different parties, it becomes, even if it's a good idea, really hard to converge to say yes to something. Like for example, in Bitcoin, there's a very famous governance crisis, the block size debate. And not important what that was about, but what's important is what happened. It created a holy war and Bitcoin split in two and there was Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash and they hate each other. And so these were formerly people that all got along. They all loved each other, and it's great. but they had a governance failure. And then suddenly the ecosystem split and there was a fork because they couldn't converge to a proper decision. The problem is the bigger these systems get without a governance system, it's impossible for that union to hold itself together. And you also have to have legitimacy in that governance system. Why are so many people after every election get so angry because they think the elections are illegitimate? So it depends on who wins. Texas wants to secede or California wants to secede. But it's basically like people are angry and they feel like their vote didn't count and they didn't pick the candidates and that the system is rigged. Well, similarly, if people feel the system that controls their money, their value, their identity, is rigged, they will get disenfranchised if they don't get what they want and the system will spread. So this is the hardest problem to solve because we haven't solved it in America for ourselves. And we're talking about solving this for a global financial operating system. And that's the sustainability issue of how do you pay for stuff and how do you converge the decision? So back in 2015, I said, let's start something like a DARPA program. Let's spend five years and just do tons of R&D, hire all the scientists, set up all these academic labs. So we set up one at Tokyo Tech because I love Japan. We set one on University of Edinburgh because I love whiskey. It's Scotland. That's great. <laughs> uh, we set one up in University of Athens because I love Greek food. And then we set one up at University of Wyoming because I'm a cowboy at heart. And so we built, built all these labs and we have about 25 PhDs that work with us uh, who are all professors or postdocs or grad students. And then a whole constellation of affiliates like at Oxford and Cambridge and all these other places that we work with. And we've written 102 papers. 102, over 10,000 citations in that portfolio. And a lot of them were peer reviewed at uh, major venues like crypto and CCS and Eurocrypt. In the cryptography land, peer review is done at conferences instead of journals. And so it's- Ah, uh, understand. It's, yeah, so it's really hard to get into the conferences. It's the opposite math. Anything can get into a conference and you, you, nothing gets into the journal. But what's nice about the conferences is that they're much more frequent. So every three to six months you can go, but they only accept 10% of the papers submitted. It's very rigorous. So anyway, we've been- through peer review for a lot of our portfolio. And then what we had to do is turn that research into an actual working protocol. So we spent about two years in deep research, and then we started actually turning things on and writing code, and we wrote in a very rigorous way. We followed something called formal methods. So what that means is that you write a blueprint for your software, and then you write the software, and then you use advanced techniques to prove that the software follows the blueprint. Now, the advantage there is that you reduce your bugs and the software ends up being more secure. The disadvantage is that there's 12 people that know how to do that, and half of them work for the government. So the other half are very expensive, and uh, it takes quite a bit of time to, to get it all done. But that's okay. We had time, so we spent it. So we built Cardano that way. We had three design goals, the scalability goal, the interoperability goal, and the sustainability goal. We wrote 102 papers. We did a lot of academic work to try to figure out good solutions for each of those buckets. And then we had a lot of principles in the way that we built it because we wanted these protocols that we built to be around forever. We'd like them to be used in 2030 and 2040 and 2050. So correctness was a, a huge ambition of ours. So we launched the first version of Cardano, Byron, in September of 2017. It grew 
rapidly. And now we have a community almost a million strong and tons of participation. And we did the biggest upgrade last year that was Shelley. And we went from a static and federated system to a dynamic and decentralized system, which means Cardano is now actually one of the most decentralized of all cryptocurrencies. And we're just about to add that programmability that was programming languages to make Cardano interactive. So you can issue tokens and you can build dApps and DeFi and you can do your NFT marketplace and sell your tweets or do crypto kitties <laughs> or whatever you want to do. And that's coming in the second half of 2021. So it's been a wild ride. It's absolutely Oh my ride. God. So I love the fact that you are a cowboy at heart because you have been riding a bucking Bronco for almost 10 years now, 10, 12 years, which is damn incredible. But as you were explaining, solving the problem. You're always solving a problem. So that's the through line here as from the yeah. scalability here, the interoperability, the governance slash sustainability of how to make this thing go. You were trying to solve all of those problems. You took the time and did it quote the right way. I love the term rigorous. You subscribe to the protocols and trying to make sure that all of it worked and it's move from the static to the dynamic to the, you change the experience in and of itself, but the applicability is what is so fascinating to me. And when you think about, when you thought about, let me go back, starting Cardano, and I'm gonna ask you in a minute, like how you named Byron and like, how'd you name all that yeah. stuff? Gerolamo Cardano, and I don't know why there's not a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio playing him, because there <laughs> should be. He was a 16th century mathematician and he was just a crazy guy. He, he was an astronomer, a mathematician, a doctor. And he was just one of those guys that did everything. And he wasn't a good guy, but he wasn't a bad guy. He was in that gray area, which makes him exciting and fun and sexy. So for example, just to give you a sense of how crazy Cardano's life was, he was the personal physician of the Pope, but he was also excommunicated from the church, but he was still the physician of the Pope after being excommunicated because the Pope liked them. How he does that work? That doesn't make I, any I don't know. Sense. I don't know. He nearly killed one of his sons in a sword duel because they were sleeping with the same woman. And then, then also he was a gambler and, and he invented a lot of probability theory just so he could be a better gambler. So he like created all this advanced mathematics just so he could you know, count cards and roll dice properly and so forth. And he had a habit of like getting kicked out of cities. And he also was a cryptographer because uh, in Renaissance Italy, they had a lot of like intrigue between the banking families and so forth. So he invited this wheel device to encrypt messages so that they could have secret communication between the families. Wow. So I just read about this guy years ago and I was like, wow, he's one of the most interesting people I've ever read in my life. So I think a cryptocurrency, it can do both good things and bad things. And it also does a little bit of everything and it's just all around an interesting system. And I thought it would be really cool to name it after Cardano. But then the other thing is that when you have cryptocurrency, you have the protocol name, but then mm -hmm. you have the currency name. And Bitcoin, it's the same. It's Bitcoin and Bitcoin. But in other systems, they're different. So oh, what I okay. decided to do with Cardano is I named the currency after Ada Lovelace. And she she was the first female programmer. She was good friends with Charles Babbage and she followed his work and she wrote the first program. And, uh, and she was just really cool. And she was also Lord Byron's daughter. Uh, so Lord Byron is one of my favorite poets. Uh, he wrote She Walks in Beauty and I'll see, I love poetry. So I, I said, it'd be really cool to get a Byron connection and, and bring this in. And I also wanted a balance. I, if I named something after a guy, I'd like to name something after a girl. So always have a nice balance between the feminine and masculine inside the, the system. That's where that came from. And then I name every major release of Cardano after either a famous poet or a famous computer scientist or somebody that I was inspired by. So for example, Byron was Lord Byron, 
then the next thing, Gogan is a world famous computer scientist who did a lot of work that I really admire. But then I also have Basho, who was a famous poet in Japan. And he went on this crazy journey during the Edo period in Japan. And everybody lived in their silos there. You weren't allowed to travel, but he was right. the guy who traveled and somehow didn't get killed. And he wrote about all his crazy journeys. And then, then we have Voltaire. And Voltaire is one of my favorite poets as well. And he wrote Candide and he also wrote all these political commentary and he was a bitter rival of Euler and so forth. So I tend to name all the, the releases after major people in the ecosystem. Shelley is another one that was after Percy Shelley. He was uh, a poet and a member of the Illuminati. His wife was Mary <laughs> Shelley, who wrote uh, Frankenstein. Of course, Mary's more famous than Percy. So when I said it was Shelley, everybody just assumed it was Mary and they were quoting Frankenstein when it came out. And I said, oh, damn it. Okay. Well, it's, it's Mary if you want. They were married. So it kind of works. Well, I love the fact that you are the entrepreneur who loves poetry and people that you see that inspire you, that reflect your values and the interests that you have. That's fascinating in and of itself. But you talked about the Cardano platform and how people can sell their tweets and their NFTs and whatever on the platform. And not on Cardano yet. We're turning those capabilities on, but on Ethereum, they ah. have been doing that. And I've been trying to, I've been playing with those toys. I sold a tweet for $23,000. Shut just, the front door. Did I, you really? I don't, I don't understand how this works. This is crazy. I'm like, what am I even selling? It's early days. Well, like, it's what data. It it's yeah. like digital stuff. So wait, if we wanted to start a social token, because this is the big craze now, right? This is the big craze. If you wanted to start a social token and sell it or an NFT, how would you do that in the Cardano ecosystem? I know you're starting to turn it or will turn it on in the future, well, but could it be have, done on Cardano ultimately? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. So the answer is yes. And actually, I think we're in the best position of anybody because we're not after the pet rock or the beanie baby. We're after the Googles. We're after sustainable things that are here forever, big and small. And so we have something called Catalyst that we started at the same time that we started Shelley. And Catalyst okay. is a decentralized treasury. So it's like a National Ooh. Science Foundation or something like that. But the money is managed by the community. So what you can do, anybody can go and submit a ballot with a, something that they want to get funded. So let's say I want to do a social token and all the proceeds will go to clean water in Africa, as an example, or something like that. And there's some use right. in utility. So you go through actually a VC process and they look at your oh, business wow. model, what you want to do. There's an expert phase where people come in and talk about it. And actually we're partnering with an accelerator and an incubator. They're going to come in and work with people to help upgrade them. But then at overall, after you get to a voting stage, people actually vote on who gets funding. And we run rounds every six to eight weeks. And those really? rounds are now in the, in the millions of dollars. There's over a quarter billion dollars, 250 million that's available in this fund at the moment. It keeps growing every day. And basically that fund is just used to be the innovation engine of the system. And it's controlled by the community. We started only 50 people participated in the very first round last year. Now 16,000 people are participating and we're probably going to fund 100 to 200 ventures through uh, Catalyst. And that's just today. And we're turning on all these capabilities. So our goal is by the end of the year to have 100,000 people participating and a whole expert class and expert ballots and having an accelerator arm and incubator arm. And we've even partnered with people like an innovation management company called IdeaScale and they work with us. We also partnered with a governance company called Governance Alive. They created sociocracy and these other things to come in. So that's one of the crown jewels. So anybody who has like a project they want to do, I say go to Catalyst because first there's this huge community. Right. You get a lot of great advice and a lot of things. And it's also open. It doesn't matter where you come from, where you're born. It doesn't matter what language you speak. 
everybody has equal access to that type of a system. So it's not like Silicon Valley where you kind of have to go there and know which hands to shake and win that lottery. Here, it's all open. It's all about the merit of your ideas. And also there's lots of partners. So what usually ends up happening is you'll have an idea and there's somebody who has a similar idea and they'll merge. And they'll say, mm -hmm. let's do this together. Let's you put resources together. So Catalyst is probably the, the best place of doing that. And I'd highly recommend it if you want to do a dedicated show to invite the product manager. We call him Crypto Bob Ross because he's such a chill guy. <laughs> His name is Dork Abish and he's uh, the product manager for Catalyst. And he could tell you about the growth and the social dynamics and how idea flow works and all these other things in a very peaceful enlightened way. And he's just like taking a warm shower. I love, I, I love Dor. And he's been running the Catalyst Project for about a year now, and it just keeps growing and growing. So that, that's where I, I would do that. So that you start your social token, it starts with an idea, you do your business model canvas, you go, let's say you get funded, and then you build it. And there's an off-chain component and an on-chain component. So the off-chain component is the proprietary stuff or the stuff that you keep on a server, because that's part of your business model. And the on-chain stuff is what actually runs on the Cardano network. And usually gotcha. those are things like, identity. Those are things like metadata. Those are things like uh, your actual value. So if you have tokens, you'll issue the token on the network and these things. And you can do all of that, most of that today. You can do metadata and token issuance. And the, la the next hard fork that's coming is going to be for the smart contract side. So that's all the on-chain programmability and so forth. And as I said, that's early second half of, of this year for that. So now is the best time to start a project because there's like a built-in decentralized VC in the sky. There's this huge oh my gosh! People are real excited about it. And we're definitely looking for lots of people to come and, and play and build stuff. Charles, you have been a delight. I have learned so much, like my head is about to explode, but in a good way, you're going to make me go and take more classes. Will you promise to come back, particularly as Cardano keeps doing all these amazing things and share with our community what's happening? We've learned from blockchain to cryptocurrency to information security to applicability. Geez, oh, Pete, how many more problems can you solve? And I know that's an, there's an infinite number if we believe in infinity, but <laughs> you have been just a treasure. I, I didn't formally take a position of whether infinity exists or not. I just adopted <laughs> a professional skepticism and, and I was examining the consequences of it not existing. It turns out you could do a lot of math without infinity, like non-standard analysis and rational trigonometry and so forth. But there is some math that does require infinity to, uh, to work properly. We didn't even get to talk about the, the side gigs. I got a ranch up in Wyoming and oh uh, my gosh. a bunch of bison and I, got a, and I got a farm here in Colorado and I'm starting a biotech company with my brother. He's, as I mentioned, he's the doctor and we're going to do uh, regenerative medicine and anti-aging. So definitely a lot more to discuss the next time I come on. Well, I definitely want to have you back. This has been a wonderful conversation and I want to keep this relationship warm because I want to learn. I'm just going to be selfish here and say, I want to learn and I want to fully engage in a really meaningful way. So let me just thank you for the time today, because we're going to spend a lot more time with a lot more conversations since you're willing. Fair? Absolutely. And I'd absolutely recommend that you have Doron because you can talk about the whole VC thing and the accelerator thing. And Tamara Hassan is the other person. She's my chief of staff and she does a lot of work with VCs and, and investments and these things. And they're just great guests to have on and they can take you through a lot of the innovations that we have. The other person to bring on is Danelle Patel. He's their chief product officer. 
And Donnell is, uh, he's originally was born in Zambia and like, he's just a living, eat, breathing inspiration. I mean, he grew up in a war zone and he went and got a PhD in computer science and he's just the humblest, sweetest guy that you've ever met in your life. And his job is to figure out how do we take this technology and apply this technology to the developing world? So when we talk about economic identity or how to get loans out there, it's one thing to say it, it's nothing to live it and do it. You right, have people right. who, who are from there, from those jurisdictions who understand the problems innately and if something's practical or not. We have people actually in Ethiopia today. They have We have an office in Addis Ababa and we have people all throughout Africa. But we also have people in Asia and Europe and other places. But Danell is just an amazing life story, an amazing guy to talk to. And I think you'd really enjoy that, that interview. I would love to. I would, all three of those people. And I'm going to keep getting recommendations from you. Listen, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are a gem. All right. Thank you, Lisa. This was so much fun. Cheers. All right, everyone. That was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.